in China podcast, where a British and an American girl satisfy all your curiosity and questions about what it's like to live in China today. And now your hosts, Holly and Nora. Hi everyone! Hello! Welcome back to the Two White Chicks in China. This is episode one hundred and fourteen. Yeah, indeed. So before we start the show, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has left us a review. We really appreciate it. And also, I just want to say thanks to our new Patreon supporter, Barry. Awesome. Thank you, Barry. Yeah. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/TwoWhiteChicks, and the two is T W O. Enough of that. Let's have our facts. So. We all know there's been a lot of inventions that have happened in China in the past, and so I wanted to talk about one. A lot of people are familiar with some of the things that were invented in China, such as paper and silk、mm-hmm. and the compass. But this won't surprise anybody who's ever been to China, but it might surprise you who have not been to China, and that the umbrella was invented here. Yeah, nice. It won't surprise those people who have been to China before because umbrellas are everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's going to rain. It's also about protecting themselves from the sun, so they're like parasol slash umbrella usage. They carry them all the time, and I just have a little blurb from this website, which is called UmbrellaHistory.net. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> so it tells a little bit about the umbrella. I find it kind of interesting. I never really thought about this before. So it says the history of the umbrella spans almost across an entire span of modern human civilization. Initially created from natural materials such as leaves of eucalyptus and palm trees, advancements in technology enabled creation of first umbrellas. One of the earliest homes of the umbrella was China. This Sorry, bear with me. The article is not exactly grammatically correct. Where three thousand years ago, the first umbrella started to be made from silk and paper. Like I said, both of those things were made in China. So, since the appearance of the first silk umbrellas in China, they represented true works of art and were, because of that, limited only to wealthy merchants, noble families, and royals. So it goes on and on to talk about the history of the umbrellas, but that's something that maybe some of you out there didn't know was invented here in China. Yeah, that's super interesting. Actually, we all we have an article on written Chinese about inventions, some of which you might not have heard about. But I don't think umbrella made it onto my list. I think there's like ten on there. Umbrella carrying is definitely part of the culture. They sell、definitely. these teeny tiny lightweight umbrellas, so women keep them in their handbags. At all times. Yeah, I tend to now actually, just in case I get caught. I don't use it for sun though. I I haven't managed to get that far in my umbrella <laughs> use. Maybe a few more years and you'll be there. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So what's on the news today?、Holly? Okay, this is a a nice uplifting article. So the headline is Tianjin cabbie clocks up the compliments. So this is about a cab driver from Tianjin called Jiang Wensheng, and he has received more than. Four thousand two hundred compliments in sixteen years from both Chinese and foreign fares. So I guess you're thinking, like, how is he? How is he keeping track? Does he have a tally chart? Well, he's actually accumulated fifty-seven notebooks. Filled with messages from travelers in a variety of languages. The reason why he's gotten so many compliments is that he lives by the motto: "Life is like a mirror; it will smile at you if you smile at it." And he says that if a traveler calls his car, I should give my smile and sincere heart to him or her. 
I just Aww. think that's really nice. But he's apparently he started to write a book. He started writing his book about his career. It's going to feature encounters with his travelers and other heartwarming stories from fellow taxi drivers. He'll also share tips on car maintenance. He's already written 80,000 words so far and he says that it should be finished by August. So look out for that. <laughs> I love that. Some of the other cab drivers should take a note from his book because mm-hmm. I've met so many disgruntled cabbies here. You ask them to take you somewhere and they literally just grunt at you. Yeah. Oh, nothing at all. Nothing. Sometimes. No response at all. And you're like, hello, did you hear what yeah. I said? Do you know where it is? And they just don't even respond to you at all. This guy sounds like a good egg all around though because he's also he would also give free rides to the elderly and disabled people as well. Oh, yeah, nice. giving them free um, rides to like the hospital and stuff like that. Just a nice guy. Oh. Alright, so shall we listen to our question? Our question is a voicemail message and it comes from Eying, who is studying in Australia. Take it away. Hello, Holly and Nora. I'm Eying. I'm a Chinese student studying in Australia and I really enjoyed your podcast. It helps me learn about my country even more. So I have a question for you guys. I'm wondering, do you know about what are the job opportunities out there for Chinese students who studied overseas and wants to come back to China to work? Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Ying. This is an interesting question that at first I was like, how are we going to answer this? Neither of us are Chinese and we have, although studied abroad, it's not quite the same thing. What were your initial feelings about this question? Well, I have a list of ideas that I think would be suitable for students returning from overseas. Initially, I had a similar feeling as you did, Holly, where I thought, I'm not qualified really to answer Mm -hmm. this question. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized what kind of opportunities would be available for these kind of people. So if you're coming back from abroad, you have two main advantages. First, of course, is the language. You can probably, you can speak English really well. You're comfortable communicating in English. That is a major benefit. The second is you have a better understanding of Western culture. There's a massive cultural divide between China and actually a lot of the Western countries. So if you can understand better the psyche of Westerners, then you will be very valuable to many companies here in China. The first thing that came to mind is the most obvious to me, which is to teach English. There are quite a few returnees that I've met who are teaching English now in China. The salary, of course, is not as high as a foreigner who is a native speaker, but I do believe they they do make a decent salary for somebody who maybe doesn't have other previous work experience or only has a bachelor degree. Teaching English is actually not a bad gig for those people. I would agree, and on, on that note as well, maybe translating as well. Although my response to this question, I went down another track because I I thought I I can give a couple of job ideas. I can come up with a couple of ideas, but I was more interested in what happens when someone who studied abroad returns to China and if if it's hard to find a job, like those struggles. So I found that although people returning to China will have a good level of English, there's also a lot of people who've studied within the mainland who also have a good level of English. So to have another language, say for example, Spanish is really desired at the moment you might have a leg up on other people if you have other languages other than English for translating, as an example. 
I also think for translation, unless you've spent a significant amount of time abroad, then you'll probably only be able to do English to Chinese and not the other way around. The writing is so different. So a lot of times when translating from Chinese to English or vice versa, you usually need two different translators. One who takes a Chinese and puts it into basic English, and then another person who's about native speaker level who then polishes the English and corrects any confusing because a lot of it is not whether or not the translation is correct a lot of it is just making it sound more natural so I think doing from English to Chinese will be a better choice for somebody who can speak that language well but isn't necessarily native proficiency. Continuing on with the language, focusing on the language skill, I thought also, for example, working in a kindergarten or international school or a training center that has English classes, anywhere that employs foreigners, you'll be a great advantage because I think managing foreigners, so being a manager of this of English teachers, is not a very easy job for people who have never been abroad. They don't understand the carrot versus the stick analogy. I think in China, people are taught to obey authority figures with this kind of dog-like obedience. Whatever they say, you just do it and you don't question it. But usually with foreigners, that is not a very successful method. People want to know why they're meant to do something and have the option to choose from a selection of things rather than being told this is what you need to do, don't ask questions. I also think Chinese tend to be more adaptable if in the middle of the semester they suddenly have some kind of policy change. Chinese people generally seem to accept this, whereas foreigners expect the rules to be the same at the beginning as they are at the end. So having somebody to explain the reasoning behind a policy switch is really important to keeping morality up and also avoiding any frustration. <laughs> Being here a long time, I've met a lot of English teachers and I find that a lot of time their biggest complaint isn't about the actual teaching hours that they have. That tends to be fine. A lot of it is really about the bureaucracy and a lot of English teachers will quit if they're frustrated with how things are run and managed. So I think for somebody who has a better understanding of Western culture, they will have an easier time. And that actually saves the company a lot of money because a lot of times if the company is doing it properly, then they've spent a lot of effort and time to get a work visa for their foreign teachers. So they don't want them to up and leave halfway through the semester because that's an investment that they can't get back. Yeah, I agree. This, re this makes me laugh. Just you talking about it just reminds me of my experiences back when I was teaching and the, the management they would have to like liaise between the upper management, like the head teachers and the, the foreign staff. It was just a joke a lot of the time. Most of them did not have a clue like how to communicate with us. However, at the school I worked at, at some point they actually employed a young girl who had studied in Canada and she had a Canadian husband. And she was by far like the better, you know, she really knew, understood our problems. Although, I mean, she, and she really did try her best to, like, make things better for us. At the same time, she didn't have a lot of clout. She did try and explain things, but she was unable to 
she didn't have any power. Bless her, she did try, and, and it did it did make things a bit easier, I think. I think sometimes just having somebody to cushion the communication between the head office and the foreign teachers can really lower the friction between the staff members. It's also a language a language issue because sometimes when Chinese is translated into English and vice versa, it can come off as really crude and blunt and rude, in fact. And so sometimes if someone has no understanding of a real understanding, like used it in a, in the country or been to the UK or the US or Australia and used their English there, they really don't understand how to, yeah, like pad it out and make it a little more just sound nice I guess this girl that I spoke about she knew how to do that and you know apologize and say look I know this isn't great but blah 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 so kind of yeah as you said like cushion cushion the blow somewhat I think mm-hmm yeah Going along with language learning, of course, another option for you to do is to teach Chinese. In pretty much any major city in China, you're going to have quite a few foreign. I mean, more and more foreigners are coming to China eager to learn the language. Many of them start with zero. So they come to China, they know very little. Maybe they know ni hao, and that's about it. So if you can explain your own language to somebody else, it's really helpful. Of course, it's better if you've studied how to teach, but I think you still have a leg up on most people who... There are a lot of people here who want to do this language exchange, like, oh, you teach me English and I'll teach you Chinese, but they have to understand the cultural divide as well when teaching the language. In China, students learn written Chinese, for example, by just... Maybe when they're they're really little, they have some kind of pictures to go along, with the Chinese characters, but as young adults, they just learn through rote memorization. This doesn't work for foreigners. They will forget. You teach them a hundred characters, they will forget the next hundred. So you need somebody who can explain it in a logic that a foreigner can understand. And I think you'll have more success if you have a deeper understanding of Western culture and you can speak English more confidently and fluently. I think hourly salaries for Chinese teachers is quite good now. Way more than it was when I first started having classes. So you could make a decent salary per day with only a few students, I think. Right, you're talking about basically freelancing it and right, finding your right. own students. Yep, you can do that using websites that foreigners use here. For example, Shenzhen Party and Shenzhen Stuff, and I'm sure... Most major cities have their own variations of these websites. Or you can get on some WeChat groups and offer your services. So doing it part-time as a freelancer, yep, I think you can make quite a decent amount of money just cash in hand to do that. Yeah. They also have uh, more and more Chinese language training centers for foreigners in big cities. So you could potentially apply for a job at one of those as well. Yeah, with you just mentioning the WeChat thing, when I was making my notes for this for the this episode, I was thinking it's so amazing how many things you can do on WeChat. I can order my fish to be de- fish to be delivered at my home. I can chat mm-hmm. with my friends, and you you can find jobs too. And it's a lot of word of mouth. Like my husband recently put a job up on WeChat for he needed someone to work at his training center and he was inundated with the job applications. Like wow. the only thing is is that it seems sometimes people are so enthusiastic they're not always reading the full job description. So sometimes he felt like he was he had time wasters. But I mean that's I guess that's gonna happen when there's so many the, the population is so large and the job market is so competitive. We I think WeChat's a big one. You want a, a teacher who's got experience and someone else has tried as well. I guess that's more for us than for 
Chinese teacher. Speaking of WeChat, there are more and more services offered to foreigners through WeChat. There's one called Bao Pals, where they basically search Taobao for you to help find a product and then they tack on, I don't know what the exact fee is, 10% or something like that to the cost. So they basically just help you search through Taobao to find the product that you want and then help send it to your address for mm -hmm. foreigners who can't read Chinese. So they, And there are other services like this as well. There are people who help foreigners find nannies for their kids. There are people who help foreigners find apartments. Mm. Um, there's a lot of these agents that help introduce foreigners to services that are available to all the Chinese people here, but that foreigners can't access due to the language barrier, especially with a lot of the information being written in Chinese and not spoken. A lot of the foreigners have a very hard time reading the Chinese and need help. On WeChat as well, there's news sources about life in China and about politics and about different topics in China, and it's many of these are available in English language. So you could also potentially be a content creator for a WeChat channel that offers English news and resources. So that's another job that you could do all on WeChat. There's a lot, of, actually, a lot of things that mm. you could do on WeChat. Yeah, I agree. And just on that. Talking about news, I was thinking if your major was in marketing, having that Western exposure, if you come back and you work for a company who wants to market to, to the West, then I, I imagine that you have, you'll have experience and those companies would want to employ someone like you to market towards Western tastes, I guess. If you understand Western social media, as we know, China has its own ecosystem when it comes to social media. They don't use Facebook, they don't use YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, none of that stuff is available here. And so many Chinese don't quite understand how these social media channels are used in the West. It's the same when foreigners come to China, they think, oh, Weibo is the Chinese Twitter. But actually, it's not the same as Twitter. Each has kind of their own usage. So if you have a better understanding for how to use Western social media, you'll be a great help to companies like Holly said, which are looking to expand into the Western market but are not familiar with these social media channels. They definitely work differently. I mean, Chinese social media versus social media in the West, it's just it's just consumed in a co in a totally different way, a totally different manner. So having that experience is, is definitely worthwhile, I think, for companies who want to employ marketers. I think a lot of Chinese companies miss the mark when they go into Western social media marketing because they just try to apply what... They're just basically taking what they would do in China and just turning it into English and pushing it over onto Western social media platforms. And with just a little bit of guidance, the content would do so much better. Please check your spelling, check your grammar. Like this is such a turnoff. I don't know. This is something that is so common, this mistake. Maybe the language is good enough that somebody might be able to understand what you're saying. But the point is to build trust with your audience. And I think a lot of trust is lost when people feel like it's a foreign entity speaking. And so if you if you just take a little bit of time to clean up the spelling, clean up the grammar, it really helps build trust for, for people who are using the product. They want to know that there's somebody on the other side who understands the problem that you're solving and who is ready to help you if you have issues with the product. So it's really, really important to get the language right. And same with the service culture. In China, it's kind of a joke that after-sales service is really bad. Everybody says, like, once you hand over the money, then 
nobody wants to help you anymore. It's getting much better now in China because it's so competitive. But that after sales service is really important in the West because you want repeat customers. In China, there are so many people that even if you hit one person once, you're fine. But in the West, you need to take care of your customers a little more to get them coming back. Otherwise, you're dead in the water. So somebody who has had experience abroad will have a much better understanding of how to do this and will be a great help to Chinese companies reaching towards a Western market. Another opportunity I think that's available to you is, for, is working for a foreign company that has a branch in China or is a joint venture in China. These companies could gain a lot from having somebody who can communicate well to them in English but understands the market here in China. Helping people find factories, helping communicate with suppliers, helping people get up to speed on latest technology, the latest technologies in China is really important. If you don't speak Chinese, even if you live here, it takes a long time to sift through all the news and channels. Chinese people just do a better job because they understand the landscape better to more quickly find what's a legitimate advancement in technology and what's just kind of bogus. So you could be a great asset to a foreign company in China as well. As I said at the beginning, I kind of went down this in a different... I took a different avenue with my research for this episode. So since we're talking about jobs and stuff, I want to talk to you about some major aspects that employers are looking for. This is in general, but it also focuses on Chinese returnees to China. Employees are looking for the obvious problem-solving abilities, teamwork, creativity and innovation, interpersonal skills and time management. But they also said that they would choose Chinese returnees because of their international outlook and would prefer to employ Chinese people returning to China over people who studied domestically. And that they would also, this is 80% of employees would offer better packages with better promotion opportunities um, and they would also give them better positions within the company wow. which is really interesting that's 17.5% said they would give them core and managerial positions I mean that sounds really good although <laughs> I did find a lot of articles that suggest it's not peachy to come back to China and to get a job, I found some, I, I actually want to get into some words and phrases that I, I discovered. So these are all based on the sea for some reason. Uh, so a sea turtle, have you, I don't know if you've heard of any of these. These were all new to me. A sea turtle is someone who's returning to China after studying. And there, there are two types of turtles. A big turtle is who studied at a prestigious university and has extensive work experience. And then there's a small turtle who studied at a lesser university and has little to no work experience. Then there are bathing crabs <laughs> who studied abroad but only earned like a, a diploma. And then there's seaweed who these are overseas returnees who are looking for employment. So these are <laughs> these are super I guess because it's overseas, so it's all yeah, related yeah, to the I ocean. Guess. I just I found those really that that really interesting. Let me give you some information about people returning. Like why do people return to China? Why don't they just they've studied abroad, why don't you just stay and work abroad as well. There are quite a few reasons actually. One of them is that it's expected. If your family is going to pay for your education, then you should really come back and take care of your family. There's 
We've talked a lot about how important family is in Chinese culture and not only that but if you come back you can take advantage of the connections within your family. There's something called Guangxi which is basically connections and it's so important in China. I think actually it's important all over the world but more so it's it's like it's just an essential part of, of Chinese culture. You can't really do anything without this and you can obviously take advantage of family resources so a lot of people I know who studied abroad come back to China and and just move back in with their family. And why not? If the family want them, then <laughs> sure, why not do that? But there are also some problems about staying abroad once, you, once you've studied. There are problems obtaining visas or maintaining a visa. People think there are limited career advancements because there's a smaller job market abroad compared with coming back. Although, in my opinion, it's far more competitive here. The biggest issue once you're back in China is that 66% of people who studied abroad say they actually feel disadvantaged having studied abroad once they come back. And one of the biggest things was that they did not understand current corporate trends in China. Other people felt that they had problems adapting back into society in China. I guess you'd have to be away for quite a while, I suppose, not just doing a degree, perhaps masters and PhDs as well. And they found that there was problems because although they had, as you mentioned, their English was really good, was at a, a very good level, there are also Chinese students with domestic degrees who also have high English proficiency level. And also because Chinese people are able to travel more, even if they haven't studied abroad, they've become more open-minded. Companies seem to think that people with domestic degrees also have the ability to experience more of the world now, even if they haven't studied abroad. I found some statistics about the jobs that people go into that have studied abroad, and sales seems to be the highest. That's 13.5 percent of people go into sales related jobs, whereas 12 go into technical, 10 marketing, 9.4 in operational roles, and 8.4 go into administration positions. But there was, uh, I, I found an article, I think it was on Sixth, sixth Tone, and there was a story about uh, a guy called Ethan Liu, and he'd studied, he'd done a master's course in the UK, so that was for 12 months. And this had cost him $60,000 instead of the $3,000 it would have cost him to do a domestic master's degree. Wow. Yeah. And then when he came to China, came back to China, he spent 10 months searching for a job. And he was searching in the big cities like Beijing, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou. And he ended up taking a position that was only 4,000 RMB a month. So oh that's $600. So you imagine spending all that money just to take a job. But I found that there seems to be a correlation here and I found a statistic that said 45% of returnees to China earn 6,000 RMB or less on returning. So people are finding that they're not getting like a return for the, the, the time and money they've spent abroad. They come, they come back and they, they don't really earn a lot of money. I mean, less than $1,000 a month salary. I assume a lot of that is just because there are more. I mean, previously it was much more difficult for a Chinese student to be able to afford or even get the visa yeah. to go study abroad. So those who did and were able to do that were probably cream of the crop. And they were rare in China, but now mm -hmm. the market is getting more and more saturated. And so it's definitely you can't expect 
everything's going to be rosy when you come back. Oh, it's going to be so easy. You're going to get a great paying job right away. That's yeah. not probably going to be the case. But I still think that there are a lot of opportunities that you can take advantage of. You're still going to have extra skills. And if you can find a way to use them properly, you can be a great advantage to a lot of companies. If you're an asset to a company, that equals higher pay, promotions, etc., etc. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think this is just one. This is another side of things that I just found really interesting, you know, following on from your comment. So in 2007, apparently only 44,000 people returned to the mainland after studying abroad, whereas in 2016, it had 10xed and it was uh, over 400,000 wow. returning. So that, to me, that sounds, that's an insane increase. Like, I actually had to reread it and think, is that correct? Like, that just seems insane. But apparently so. Well, the market here is much better now, too, than, mm -hmm. say, 20, 30 years ago. So that also makes sense. People want a piece of it. They don't want to deal with the struggling Western markets. They want to come back to the booming economy. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And of course, for all the other benefits, being with their family, taking advantage of their guanxi, being able to take care of their parents and perform their family duties. It's all part of the whole package, so it really does make sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, I hope Ying can take a little bit from this, not focus on the negative things that I spoke about, but there are so many opportunities here, as we talk about a lot. You may be surprised at the cultural adjustment that you feel coming back to China. This is definitely something that I've spoken with a lot of ABCs or wherever they're coming back from who return to China. The frustrations, it's more like little annoyances, you know, especially if you're in the US or Canada, you usually get used to these personal space. And so when you come back to China, just little things like suddenly you feel a bit claustrophobic with all these people around you or people being kind of in your business in a way that you're not used to having been abroad for so long. So there will definitely be a cultural adjustment period it's the same when I go back home. This is something that really surprised me the most. People talk about culture shock a lot when you're traveling to a new country. Honestly, I never felt culture shock in that way because I always expected things to be totally different. But I did not expect the reverse culture shock. I did not expect going back home and feeling like a foreigner. And now I've spent almost nine years here in China, when I go home, I'm acutely aware of things that I wasn't before. And it is a very strange reality. You're at home, but you're not quite at home. You kind of feel like you're in between worlds. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can't relate the same way as you could to your friends before. And so be prepared for that, but also be prepared to take advantage of the opportunities that you now have. You may have to convince a company of your value. So think about what you can offer a company, especially with a foreign company. I think if you can sell your value to them, they'll snap you up in a minute. Don't be too disheartened if you don't find a job right away. You have skills that other people want and that will be valuable to a company. So just find those opportunities. Don't settle. Yeah, I found a, an academic site that we're talking about like what to do when you've studied abroad and you go back home and they said to try and complete an internship so one of the biggest things that a lot of Chinese who studied abroad find when they come back is that there are people with more work experience and that makes sense I'm sure with all, all over the world if you have work experience you're going to be favored over someone who doesn't so try and complete an internship also get reacquainted with the Chinese market and also take advantage of your probably new skills that you've acquired and also your network so shall we do a Chinese word of the day? Sure, sounds good. Yes, so the word that we'll learn today is overseas Chinese, and that's hua qiao. 
So those of you who live in Shenzhen will recognize this from Huachaocheng, which is a very popular area that people hang out here, and it's overseas town is how they translate it, or OCT, and it's a really cool area that's it's supposed to be kind of a Western oasis in the middle of the city, so it's kind of tailored towards these overseas returnees. Yeah, it's meant to have like a European style feel.、Mm-hmm. It d- it definitely has a an, a different and more inviting feel, I think. But I'm not completely convinced that it's a Western replica. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely not a Western replica. But it does have a different feel to a lot of the other parts of the city. The Hua in the character Hua Chao, it it's an abbreviation for China, and you'll actually see it on a lot of names for things. It、um, means kind of like splendid. So it's it's one of the characters you will see very often, especially on signage here and in the names of companies and buildings. So Hua is definitely a very good character to know, and it's actually quite a simple one to learn how to write. So it's double win, Shuangying, as they say in Chinese. So Hua Chao, Chao is overseas. Cool. So I will link to that in our show notes, and they will be at writtenchinese.com/episode114. I've got quite a few links if you're interested in learning more about Chinese people returning after they've studied abroad. I've got lots of resources and links that you can take a look at as well. Oh, nice!、Mm-hmm. And while you're on the website, you can also take a look at our web dictionary and download our mobile dictionary. Both are free to use. They're awesome tools to learn Chinese. You can sync up your vocabulary list. There's storybooks in there to learn how to read Chinese. It's got a lot of stuff. I'm sure you've heard us jabbering on about it, but I'll mention it again. It's a great resource for those of you who are learning Chinese. So we hope you tune in for our next episode. We're waiting for your voicemails. Oh yeah, writtenchinese.com/slash Voicemail. <laughs> Bye. Bye.